Wonderful. Please take a seat. And can I add my own welcome to Steve's? And it's great to have Mary back. Whee! Great to have her. Yeah. Five weeks, nearly six, I think. Um, we've not been with it. Uh, we've been without you, Mary. So good to have you back. Um, now, we're going to have a reading in a moment from Psalm, Psalms 8. And I think there are Bibles at the back. And I think uh, they might be brought forward. Yep, Jackie's going to bring them forward. So if you need a Bible, if you'd like a Bible, please do grab one as they come round. Um, I've titled this talk, The Search for Identity. And I'd highly recommend, if you want to really think through the issue of who I am, and uh, how to make sense of who I am. I'm a big fan of Keller, Timothy Keller here. His book, Making Sense of God, has been a great guide for me as I've prepared for this talk, and I highly commend that one to you. I'll leave it on there, and you can uh, have a look. Um, but to begin with, let me, just, let me just try and grab your attention with what we're talking about when we talk about identity. Um, two things I think we need to start with. Number one, your identity is your sense, or I'm offering you a definition of your identity. Your identity is a sense of um, who I am that doesn't change from one situation to the next. Okay, so whether I'm eight years old or 80 years old, there's something constant about me. My dad is now 82. When he was eight years old, he was still Nigel Walker. He's 82 now. There's something about him that is there. Um, he was still Nigel then, he's still Nigel now. Whether I'm able-bodied or disabled, if I had a car crash and lose both my legs, I'm still the same person. Um, if I'm in, involved in a relationship, maybe an intimate relationship, or not, still the same person. I'm the same person at work as I am at home, as I am at church. There's something about my identity, which will be the same everywhere. So that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is, my identity is that which gives me value, a sense of self-worth that makes me feel valued. I know, I know that I'm, I'm worth something and that people are mindful of me. They speak approvingly. Maybe they care for me. They concern over me, which gives me a sense of value. Now, that said, here's three ways. I'm going to offer you three ways that you might forge your identity. And I guess we're probably a mix of the three, right? So I'll give you three. And uh, these are just swilling around in uh, popular culture around us, and you might recognize them. Okay, so the first is I get an identity, I figure out who I am by just doing whatever it takes to get approval. So I go from place to place. Do you do this? You go from place to place, a bit like a chameleon. When I go in one place, I'll do things, I'll act a certain way, I'll speak a certain way in order to impress those people, and then I'll change when I go somewhere else. And I'll do that in order for people to confer value on me, and I'll do that whether or not I preserve some sense of who I am from place to place. So, for example, when I... T I mean, this is just me, but when I... When I tend to hang out with people who are very educated or very posh, I tend to pronounce my T's a little bit more, maybe straighten my back, maybe uh, emphasize some more of my, I don't know, maybe my credentials or whatever. But if I'm down the garage, putting the car in for an MOT, I start to go a bit geezer, I start to kick the tires, maybe um, 
say weird and strange things like, you know, well, I don't know. Um, I change, I change from place to place in order to get people to confer value, to see me, um, to value me. Uh, but there's no constancy between the two, or there's little constancy, and it's exhausting, isn't it? Wearing different masks in different places. In some ways, that's what's so nice about going home. You feel like, oh, finally, I can relax, maybe around the people who I know the most. But being out and about and going about my job and my life and being a, you know, a parent or being a church member or being a work colleague, I'm having to change from place to place in order to get a sense of value. That's one way we do it. Another way we do it is we do, I get an identity by doing whatever I feel is right. So the idea here is that um, we search out our deepest desires. So you know the language of this. It's I have to be true to myself. I have to be true to who I am deep down. And I've got to search that out and I've got to figure it out. I've got to be authentic. Right? So I might say, I'm not, I'm not my family. It's not my family who makes me. It's not my hometown that makes me. It's not even my religion that makes me. All those things are kind of by the by. What's most important is I search deep within myself to find out who I really am. But even there, can we be so sure that when we search, when we do this process of soul searching and searching for those deep desires, can we be sure that they'll be ordered, that, that desires will emerge, that things will be shown, there'll be a sort of a bedrock down at the bottom there of who I am? So, for example, here's a few pairs for you. When I search these deep desires, is it my real deep longing to eat ice cream or to lose 10 pounds? It's a silly one, but actually, when you're in that moment, you go, I really do want to eat ice cream, but I actually really do want to lose some weight. And so you think to yourself, well, what's more essential there? Even that is pretty difficult to sift. <laughs> that perplexes me most days of the week. Um, is my, here's a bit, bit more serious. Is my desire, lots of you will have thought this through, is my desire here to be a full-time parent to my child or to pursue a worthy career? That's tricky, isn't it? You must have sat through that one, but I'm sure people have gone through that or similar. Is it most important to me to be full-time at home with my child or to keep going in some way with my career. Both of those, you could, you could trace those desires right down to the bottom, probably. Is it my desire to be faithful to my spouse and my children? Or is there a stronger desire, a more essential and authentic desire to go and sleep with someone else? Can you sort those things out? If you search down deep, are we really going to say that I can actually tell you which the more fundamental desires are, which the more real are of the two in each of the pairs? And in the end, does it not actually come down to how many cheerleaders 
I'll get off the back of each of those decisions. So when I make a decision, actually what I'm looking for, is it not when I make a decision, I'm actually out looking around seeing how many people will cheer me on for this decision that I'm making. I do a sort of cost-benefit analysis. If I make that decision, will it work out well for me overall? Even if I upset some people over here, will I generally get the approval of these people over here? So um, there's a great little example in the book where he just explores this with a little thought experiment. Let me try it on you. So I want you to imagine an Anglo-Saxon man around about the year 800 AD. And uh, this man has two essential desires that he looks inside his heart and he finds. One of them is that he's ret he retaliates in the face of aggression. He wants to fight. He wants to be, you know, he wants to show valor and hurt or maybe kill. And that's, he sees that desire coming up from, from within him. At the same time, he searches his desires and he finds maybe a homosexual attraction there. Right? Now, in 800 AD, in a sort of shame on a culture that values that warrior ethic, the first, he might go, well, that, that is more essentially me. I will be the warrior. And those other desires, I will suppress. Now, bring the very same man to 21st century London. He finds the same two desires there. This time, would he not say to himself, well, that aggressive side of me, I need to get help, professional help for that. I need to deal with that and push it down. Maybe get anger management courses or whatever. But the other side of me, perhaps expressing my sexuality in that way, I can bring that out freely. Now, two desires that you might find, I'm not commenting on those desires, I'm just saying that two desires that two individuals may find at different points in history, different contexts, one they suppress, the other they uphold. And it's probably because they've done that cost-benefit analysis and they've figured... This is the way that people will confer value, that I'll feel loved and accepted. And so in that sense, we're still after. Can you see, even when you go deep down, like I'm, like, I'm trying to pull out from inside myself who I really am, we're still actually looking for approval. And so you see it on the talk shows when, um, you know, when, I don't know, these talk shows when they sort of say, they'll say something like, oh, I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just follow whatever my desires are, and I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what people say about me. And usually, when people say that sort of thing, they say it to rapturous applause, and everyone gives them a big hand clap and say, well done. And so, in a sense, they're saying something which sounds like they really don't care what anyone else thinks, but they're doing it to a massive cheer of applause quite often. Is that not the case? So it might be that we get our sense of um, self from just trying to please people explicitly. I'm just going to go from place to place trying to please people. I might be trying to get my sense of self from some deep down desires, but that's always going to be very conflicting. And in the end, it's probably just based on trying to get approval anyway. Here's a third way, quite a courageous way. I get an identity 
by just being whoever I want to be. So I'm not doing this process of soul-searching anymore. I'm not pretending there are deep desires to discover there's a real me somewhere down there. I'm simply saying I'm going to be whoever, whoever I want to be. And if I want to be this kind of person today, and I want to be that kind of person tomorrow, well, so be it. And that may sound like freedom. And that's the ticket, isn't it? That's freedom. I just, I'm just going to be, I don't have to sort of prove it. I don't have to go on a gap year to discover it. I'm just going to say this is who I am and do it. But it leaves you rudderless and adrift. So um, great story, a true story of a man whose parents basically said to him, you be, you can be whoever you want to be, and that is fine by us. Right? Whatever you want to be, we understand, son, and we'll support you and we'll cheer you on, no matter who you want to be. And it sounds very modern, and it sounds very, um, it sounds very freeing, liberating, but the man actually complained. He said he was suspicious. He said he didn't know what actually made his parents proud and what actually pleased them. And therefore, he had no way to truly win their approval. And so he said, I'm going to go and look for other kinds of family to get the affirmation that I need. Because it was such a blanket affirmation from his parents. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Then in the end, it actually felt quite meaningless. And so he sought for value from others. And this view is probably the one that's emerging the strongest, isn't it? Doing away with any sort of anchor. And many young people, in fact, many of the young people that I'm meeting weekly at Adventure Island, who have no bitterness, actually, funny enough when I speak to them, no bitterness or resentment towards Christianity when we talk about these things. When we talk about faith, when we talk about the church, even the institution, and when I talk about the Church of England or the church in general, there's no bitterness, no resentment. If anything, you get the feeling that they're just looking for someone to tell them what to do and how to live and how do I get a sense of identity. We're in the middle of a crisis. Now, let me read just Psalm 8 to you, to just speak into this. We're all, we're not immune to this, are we? I find myself in all three camps. I find myself drawn to all three of those ways of forming an identity for myself. So let me read Psalm 8. I think it's going to come up on the screens. It's an amazing psalm. Let me read it for us. And it's on page, by the way, um, about... Page 546 in the Church Bibles. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. 
You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, it might seem a little bit strange to why I chose that psalm to go through, but let me, let me explain why. In order to get an identity, we need a constant, a durable sense of self. Well, look, here we get it. Okay, verse 1, straight away, Lord. That's how the psalm starts. Verse 1, Lord. There is a God in heaven. He set his glory in the heavens and he's exalted there. There's something greater than us. There is something greater than us. The Lord God is in heaven and there's an authority here. And it says to us, we're made for worship. Verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So straight away, we get this sense, don't we, from the psalm, that we're made, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever our call in life, whether we're young or old, whatever stage, whatever age, we're called to be worshippers. It's going to be a constant and we are called. I went to a Coldplay concert maybe, ah, oh gosh, probably now 15 years ago or so. You cannot deny it. And you stand in there when I was in the uh, Earl's Court, I think, the arena there. We're made for worship. You see it there. It was like a worship service in that place. Hands in the air, singing out, tears rolling down people's faces, worshiping. We're made for worship. It's the first thing, verse one. Verse two. We live in an ordered world in which there is right and wrong, good and evil. Let me read you verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So it's possible, take it from that verse, to be an enemy of the living God which means it must be also possible to be a friend and an ally and a companion, to walk with God. That must be possible too. It says, worship. I'm built for worship. I'm built to walk with the Lord. I'm built to be an ally. Then verse 4 to 8, he says, you've You've made us a little lower than the angels. Literally there, if you look in the footnotes, God, or the gods, made us a little lower than the angels, rulers over all creation, the animals, the birds, and the fish, etc., etc. So the Lord God says to us, he says, you're in charge. You're going to be the stewards of all of my good creation, and the stewards of your bodies, and the stewards of your relationships, the stewards of all these things. And you're going to do it, right, as people who are just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Might translate that there. So you're not quite God, but you're nearly there. And so this is this idea, isn't it, of being in the image of God, God's image. We're image bearers, which means that we have a hunger to know who we are. We have a hunger to know and be known by others, to be relational people. We have a hunger to live, to last, to be eternal. 
We have a hunger to be creative and to appreciate beauty. All these things are the things that God does. And he confers to his creation, to people, me and you. A little lower, a little lower than the heavenly beings. He says, that's your place in charge of all of creation. And so there's at least, can you see here in the psalm, at least three things that you could go, I'm built, I'm designed, I'm created by the Lord God who made all the stars and the moon. I'm built to be a worshipper. I'm built to be an ally and a companion of the living God, to walk with God. I'm built to be a steward of the good creation that God's given me. My friends, my environment, my body. So God says, and if you sense in that psalm, I'm giving you a place. This is who you are. And it goes through. It doesn't matter whether I'm 80 or 8. Doesn't matter whether I'm at work, whether I'm at church, doesn't matter whether I'm able bodied, disabled, doesn't matter if I've got dementia. All those things hold true in every single circumstance. But the best thing is, right, that more than just giving us a position, more than just giving us a sense of self, he also puts immense value upon us. Have a look. Having, start, having made the moon and the stars, verse 4, we read this. He says, what is mankind that you are mindful? I love that word. I've just been sat on it for a few days. You're mindful of them. Isn't that what you want? In all of those things, in all of the things that we try and do to be valued and loved and appreciated and accepted, we just want people to be mindful of us. When I was a school teacher... Kids, kids want you to be mindful of them, whether they're behaving well and doing their homework or whether they're mucking around and being annoying. The last thing they want, really, a child is to just be you know, indifferent, to show no care, to be indifferent towards them. A child wants an adult to be mindful, to know them. The Lord is positively mindful. And he cares. It's so intimate. Human beings, that you care for them. Let me just bolster that with a few other verses from the scriptures. Isaiah 49, 15. I haven't got this on the screens. This is what the Lord says, right, just to get the level of intimacy that we need to see here. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Right, so you got the picture. A nursing mother. That's the picture the Lord gives. And then the Lord says, though she may forget, I will never forget you. See the level of intimacy there? Though a nursing mother, look at that picture there, could potentially forget their child, the Lord would never. Or Zephaniah 3, 17 God delights in his own, you know this verse? Singing over us with joy. The Lord sings. You know, to be so delighted in someone or something that you sing for joy over it or over that person. And then even verse 2 in the psalm, in Psalm 8, 
Verse 2, I love it, even as it says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. So the Lord's like, I'm going to use the praises of children and little ones, infants, to do justice. So I'm that bothered, says the Lord God, about these creatures I've made in my image. You see that? See the value? So he's given us a sense of place. We know who we are. And he's given us a sense of value. Now, here's the worry, right? Here's the worry that you might potentially have. Right, the worry is that this is just a quest. I'm just actually going to have to get affirmation from God. But this time it's on steroids. When I'm, when I'm reaching, when I'm trying to form identity, right, when I want to figure out who I am, I'm reaching out to the people around me, family, friends, work colleagues, people at church, whatever. And I'm looking for you to affirm me. So I'll do things. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever I need to do in order to get your affirmation. Now, is this just the Lord God doing the same thing? Right? You find your place as a worshiper. You find your place walking with me. You find your place being a steward of the good things I've given you. And then, then I will confer on you that kind of intimacy and value that you want. Because right. if it is, if it's that, that is the most crushing of all. That is more crushing than anything else because now it's the Lord saying in order to get that stamp of approval, you have to do this, 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 and this. But you know, this psalm is quoted in four places in the New Testament. Four Matthew 21, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1. All four times. Actually, instead of saying this psalm is primarily about us, the New Testament says this psalm is primarily about Jesus. Because he was the one who became a little lower than the angels when he became one of us. He became a little lower than the angels. He became a human being like me, like you. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death in my place in order to completely turn the tables around in this way of identity formation. So instead of this idea that I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to perform, I've got to be a worshiper, I've got to walk with God, and I've got to be a good steward, and then God will favor me. The Lord Jesus comes... He makes himself a little lower than the angels. He dies a death on our behalf and he turns the whole thing around. And so he says, first, I'll say you're loved, you're mine, you're forgiven. I love you. I cherish you. You're deeply, powerfully, intimately loved. And from there, he then says, now come, follow me. See the difference that makes? Turning the whole thing around. Identity formation happens at the cross, where actually everything happens there. When you sit at the feet of the cross, with the Lord Jesus dying for you there, he's both saying to you, I love you so much that I'm hanging here for you. 
and I'm dying your death. And then he says, now come. Die to yourself and follow me. But it's that way round. He says, first, first I love you. First I'll give everything for you. First I'll shed my body and blood for you. Now, come and follow me. And he turns the whole thing on its head. And that's why when we do communion in just a moment, we first, in this service, we first eat bread and wine, and Steve will lead us through it in a moment, and he'll say to you the body and blood of Christ. You first receive the Lord God. He's ours and we're his. And then at the end of this service, we say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And it's that way around. You see that? First, we receive, I'm loved and I'm known. Here is the body and blood of Christ. And then at the end of this time together, in that order, we're told to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord and to walk with him. And so all of that chasing, all of that running after approval, all of that seeking the validation and value of other people, in order for them to say, I, I affirm you, you're all right, the whole process is turned on its head at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the message, right? There is nothing like it. This was supposed to be a sort of vision Sunday. All I wanted to do really was preach Psalm 8 because there is nothing like this in all the world. This is the one place, the cross of Christ, where you come there first and the Lord says, you're mine. You're mine forever. And then walk before me all your days. Like that. And that is the only, the only sense of self and validation and worth that any of us were ever built for. And we hold this, we're custodians of this message, brothers and sisters. We, this is the deposit that the Lord God has given us. And if we're going to do anything this year, if we're going to do anything in the coming year, 2021, 22, let us hold this message and this deposit, this incredible news that God has turned the tables around and given us infinite value and called us to follow him to the community beyond those doors, to the people we're meeting, to the people who might come through these doors. Can we pray for that? Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you and we worship you that in Jesus you turn all the tables, that we're loved, that we're precious, that we're yours, forgiven, bought at the greatest price, held, hidden in Christ, our Lord and our God. And from there, you call us to die, die to self, and follow you um, in the depths of your love and affirmation and value. You call us to walk beside you all our days. May we do that, Lord God, faithfully. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.